بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم والصلاة والسلام على أشرف المرسلين سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه ومن تبعه بإحسان إلى يوم الدين اللهم لا علم لنا إلا ما علمتنا إنك أنت العليم الحكيم رب اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري واحلل عقدة من لساني يفقه قولي Oh Allah, grant me sincerity on that day, grant me even if temporary <laughs> eloquence uh, and clarity and ability to uh, show your servants how great is Islam and how great is the Prophet ﷺ and don't make my tension or my language or the British context and the security and all these ideas be an impediment towards transforming the words that uh, are in my heart to their heart rather than from my mouth to your ears. Oh Allah, grant us sincerity and grant us success and blessing and create, uh, despite the air conditioning, uh, an air of warmth and love between us during these couple of days. I am happy to see you all as always and I am more happy to see new faces and I am happy to see familiar faces. I am even more happier to see brothers at that large significant number. And happy to, to hear babies as well. Uh, and I'm saying this because uh, the stereotype is that, as one brother told me, if you want uh, lots of sisters to attend, uh, uh, do a talk on marriage or a talk on children. I think you broke this stereotype, you, bro- you bro- broke the, 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 the rule. And if anything, if any, I, I'm very glad, I'm extremely glad, because I'm a brother and <laughs> I want all the brothers to be educated about parenting and about how Rasulullah dealt with children. And because if anything, I think it shows this mutual uh, feeling of responsibility and duty. We are not here coming to be entertained. Um, uh, we are coming here to learn with the entertainment, uh, uh, but but uh, but the, the the main thing is the education, and and the benefit. Um, so this is one thing, and I'm glad actually to see people that I knew when I was young, and when they were bachelors, and I see them now either engaged or married, or uh, uh, now that they are fathers and mothers. I'm extremely glad. And if anything, it shows that you are getting old, um, which is not always a pleasant uh, feeling. But who knows? Maybe those children, maybe the sisters that are pregnant or the, ch- the sisters that are having their babies with them, maybe those people. And I think that those people should one day be instead of me in my place. Better English, better understanding of the culture, etc., etc. The knowledge is not a problem. Just go two years and learn Arabic and have access to the books. But it's the mind, it's the intelligence, it's the sincerity. And this is you can have, and this is you should have, and this is you will have, inshallah. Okay, what, uh, what, what, why are we here? Okay, immediately, immediately, we are not here to attend a parenting course. I am not, uh, I have no, nothing to do with parenting. If my wife was here, she would become crazy hearing this. I have nothing to do with parenting in the sense that uh, I don't know much about counseling. I don't know much about uh, if, uh, if you are worried that your child might uh, become addicted to drugs, etc. I, I, I can't help in that. I am a political historian. I know much about Sira and history, but not much about psychology. Uh, I'm not a psychiatrist, uh, psychiatrist, etc., etc. I'm not even a cyclist. If, if that was a Freudian, Freudian slip, uh, so why are we here? I said why we are not here. 
just to dispel any misunderstanding. And the last thing I want you is to be disappointed, meaning that, uh, uh, meaning that uh, you come and say, I want my money back. D- don't come to me, go to Sami. Uh, I'm saying this because I gave the four great imams and at the outset it says the brochure, the brochure and the poster that this is going to explore the, uh, the social dimension of the four imams. It has nothing to do about fiqh, this, 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 this. And at the end of the second day I was exhausted. I thought I did a tremendous job. I had this senior brother coming to me. I said, really brother, your talk was good, but I'm really disappointed because I expected to get out of this course uh, all the usul al-fiqh and masalih marsala and istihsan, etc. People, it seems that they have been addicted to repetition. They want to hear what they have heard before and they are not ready yet to... Uh, but uh, alhamdulillah with the four great imams, with Bukhari, with the, with the help of others, we try to explore a new a virgin land, new new dimension in our heritage, the social, the human dimension. And this brings me some, to, to something that is close to my heart, and it's not crystallized in my head at the moment, but maybe we meet after a couple of years, and maybe then it will be more developed. But really, and I said it to some of my friends, and some of them did not accept what I said. I said to them, look at how the seerah is being written. Today, pick any, any book in seerah. And the, the main headings, and I have no problem with that. I'm not criticizing that. But just question that. Question, why, why is it like this? And is there anything sacred about it? And should it continue to be like that? And by the way, you will find its relevance to the bombings and the sort of culture that is, is emerging. Uh, I hope it's not a culture or anything like this. But anyway, the manifestations of what's going on. Seerah al-Nabawiyyah, Rasulullah before Ba'tha, before he became a prophet, and then uh, the Meccan period, and the, the, you know, the, the torture of the Sahaba, etc., and then Medina. And then straight away, yes, a couple of years, it's the Battle of Badr. And then another couple of years, uh, it's the Battle of Uhud. And then you see it, you see it in the Seerah. For someone like myself, and someone who's mature enough like yourself, I'm sure you know, you will get... The, you know the seerah, etc., that Rasulullah lived for 23 years, etc. But imagine a young boy or a young girl reading that. What's the impression? The impression is that Rasulullah was doing nothing other than fighting, was entering a battle and getting out of it in preparation for another battle. And our entire culture in the talks, etc., it's about Badr, Uhud, Khandaq, Hudaybiyah, Fath Makkah, the impression that people get is that we are always in a continuous state of war. Now, I would like to say that this is not necessarily the seerah of Rasul but this is the military seerah. In fact, in Arabic, it's called Al-Maghazi, coming from Ghazwa. So Maghazi, yes, the historians say that Maghazi is the seerah, but Maghazi is the uh, plural for Ghazwa, which means battle, which, me- which means a military uh, campaign. What we tend to not focus about or to study enough is what happens in between Badr and Uhud. What happens in between Badr and Uhud, between Uhud and Al-Khandaq. Rasulullah goes and settles in Medina. He interacts with his wives. He interacts with children. He talks to the companions in the mosque. He walks the market. He is doing what? He is living a civilian life. This civilian life is omitted or studied enough in the books of Sirah. So what am I 
trying to do here. It's not a parenting course, but you can say it's a Sira course with two unique things. The camera in that narrative is focusing on the children. It's not focusing about a confrontation between Abu Jahl and Rasulullah It's not focusing on Bilal that is being wept in Mecca and he's saying Ahadun Ahad. No. The camera is focusing on the children. Wherever there are children, the camera moves. And in fact, you will notice that with all the hadiths that are in the course, the holders of the camera are children. So it is Anas ibn Malik, who is a child, who is actually following the actions of Rasulullah whenever he interacts with children, documenting that interaction. Fascinating. So number one, it is seerah, where the camera is focusing on the children, and the holders of the camera are children. Number two, a civilian context, a civil context. No swords, no weapons. Why? Because Rasulullah is developing. And when you develop, you will not be able to develop through a sword, guns, or explosives. To develop, you need to sit down in moments of peace and talk and educate and construct and instruct and reform and rectify. How can we know each other if we are fighting each other? What's your name, brother? Bam, kill. No, you can't do that. Ta'arafu means we have to have a state of peace, sit in a coffee shop, walk together, etc., etc. Shu'uban wa qaba'il, that means for the non-Muslims. So it's not about parenting, it's about seerah, focusing on the children. And I hope that I am, with the grace of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, setting a precedence. In what? Well, at least in providing this material in an audio form in English. I don't claim that I'm original in that. These are from the books that are available in Arabic and perhaps in the future available in English. But I thought that today's generation, the listeners of Virgin and uh, uh, CDs and etc., uh, etc., et we need to go to them rather than grab their... Well, unless you, you do a book like Harry Potter, that's something else. But unfortunately, you don't have fascinating writers yet, so we have to rely on the audio. So, but the future is bright. The future is bright. And in, I'm sure that in the future things will be better than that. So providing it in an audio form. But number two, I'm trying to provoke you to think about other things that can be done in the future. Have you thought of the possibility of us or you or anyone doing a course on how did Rasulullah go? How did Rasulullah live his teenage life? Have you thought about this? When he was 12, 13, 14, 16, did he used to smoke when he was teenage? How was his relations with girls? These kind of, did you ask these questions? Uh, sexual desires, etc., etc. Okay, this is one, one dimension. Rasulullah, the teenager. Have you thought about uh, the social problems that were at the time of Rasulullah? Have you thought about addicts? Not drug addicts, alcoholics. Are you aware that there were alcoholics at the time of Prophet Muhammad Are you aware that there was a companion that was lashed many, many times for drinking? He was alcoholic. Are you aware that there was a companion in the battlefield that was drinking but fighting fiercely and uh, the leader exempted him and did not punish him because he's in a state of, uh, 
war and you cannot apply Islamic rules outside Islamic. But he was alcoholic without going into the fiqh. I'm saying alcoholic, not drinking in parties and occasionally, no. People that were addicts and being lashed because they are drinking in public. They cannot control themselves other than to, to, to drink in public. Have you thought about uh, husbands and wives, companions that is that uh, divorced? Both of them are pious and everything, but they were fighting each other. Uh, Zayd ibn Haritha that divorced Zainab bin Jah. Have you thought about this? Have you thought about companions that were extremely poor and begging uh, and have no place to sleep other than in the mosque or in the streets and Rasulullah trying to encourage one of them to find a job? They were homeless at that time. Have you thought about these kind of... Have you thought of contemporizing Islam? That's what I'm trying to say. And contemporize the sort of problems. You see, brothers and sisters, there is a duality. We tend to be unconsciously secular. Because we have this duality between the modern and the pre-modern. The modern and the classic. The ideal, Rasulullah And the modern, Loughborough, Leicester, Nottingham, bombings. These kind of things. And in between this duality, there is a confused generation that is growing up, getting married and growing beard and wearing hijab, but continuing to be confused, easy to recruit and easy to, born to kill, basically. Uh, have the ability to kill. Have you thought about these kind of, have, have you thought about Rasulullah getting married? How did he get engaged? How did he propose? How did he see the girl? Did he like her or not? What were his uh, conditions for marrying this girl? And another that proposed to him and he said no. Nine wives. With every wife there is a story. I'm not talking just about biographies of the mothers of the believers. No, no. I'm talking about men and women. Rasulullah and the women. And how they interacted with each other. How did Rasulullah deal with his wife when she became pregnant? Have we ever thought about what did Rasulullah do exactly inside the house? Did he do the hoovering? Did he clean the shoes? What did he do, for example, if he came home and did not find lunch ready? Did he clean the dishes? I'm asking. I don't have immediate answers. Although I know that once he came, entered the house and said, any food? They said no. And he said, okay, I'm fasting. Okay, no fight, no, nothing. I'm fasting. I'm sure that if we think about Islam in this kind of way, Islam will then become more relevant to people living not in a state of war, but in a state of peace, not in the battlefield, but in a civil society. Do you understand what I'm getting at? I am saying we have to make the seerah extremely relevant to us. And because we are not living in a state of war, focusing on the battles alone is not appropriate is lacking. It's not, it's insufficient. I'm not saying it's, we should disregard it because within battles, there were ethics and morals that we have to learn during peace and during war. But what I'm saying is that we will have a lot more to benefit if we focus on the gaps between the battles. This is one idea. But there are other ideas. There are other aims and objectives. To introduce a new dimension to the seerah, or the life of the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ, which I said and explained now. Another aim is to introduce parents and potential parents to a wide range of ways and methods that the Prophet ﷺ employed with children 
to raise them properly and deal with their challenges. I was hesitant of telling you this, but because we love each other and we hope that we will get to know each other, I was hesitant because I don't think it's appropriate to talk about yourself a lot, but if there was any experience that I might share with you, it's the following. One of the things is that when I was about to get married, I went to the bookshops and bought all the books on marriage. All the books in Arabic. And sometimes in English, I read uh, John Gary's uh, Men Are From Mars and Women Are... And these kind of... Uh, it's entertaining. I read them. To understand, I don't have sisters, so to understand women, my, my future wife... So I read the books. And the best way, I tell you this as a teacher, the best way to learn is to teach. So when I was reading these books, I was uh, offering myself to give the Jum'ah khutbas in the mosques. So, brothers and sisters, today, inshallah, I'll talk to you about how Rasulullah dealt with his wives. And I gave uh, this khutbah years ago in Cambridge and in Good Street, and people were going to stone me. How did Rasulullah deal with sexual desires? This is one of the sessions here. So, books on marriage. Then when my wife became pregnant, I uh, began to read, but not a lot now. Now I began to buy the books on children for my wife rather than... Re I, I did my bit in the marriage books, but, but I continued to read the books on children. And I found this fascinating book which is called Al-Manhaj al-Nabawi fi Tarbiyat al-Atfal. The prophetic methodology in rearing and breeding and raising up uh, children. Very small book, about 200 pages small, like A5. And I want to tell you at the outset that this book fascinated me and I read it once, and I talked about it to many people. I bought many copies, and I gave it to my wife to read. And I want to tell you that a lot of what will be said today is based on that book. But other books as well, internet sites, etc., etc. Why am I saying this? I am saying this to encourage you to read. If you are not married, read about marriage. I'm not saying that this will compensate the experience. She might not be the woman that you read about in the books. She might be more beautiful and more, mashallah, better than that. But you have to read. Reading is good. So read about, and if you are pregnant, read about children. Not just through the GP, the physical and the health and breastfeeding, etc. No, the de development and the psychology. And I ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to help us to uh, take you through some of the things that Rasulullah did with children. I will focus on, I will treat children as blocks, their personality as blocks. And Rasulullah was building, the builder was building the blocks, was building the emotional block, the spiritual block, the sexual block, the social block. And that's why I don't think that these children were confused. And in the final session, we will see those children when they grown up, when they became adults, when they became fathers, when they became grandfathers. Incidentally, I want to tell you something that is a, a defect or a weak point, a point of, of weakness in that course. And I must admit this as, a, as an academic. In, in PhD theses, they say to us in the Viva, identify points of weakness. And I'm honest in that. Actually, a point of weakness in the entire course is that there isn't too much focus on girls, female children, that is. But I will put this to the challenge to you as sisters and as brothers. 
we need to know about Aisha when she was young. Do you know that Aisha when Rasulullah died, she was only 18? Teenager. Asma, her sister, and Fatima, and other. I focused on the boys. Lack of resources, nothing to do with uh, sexism or uh, gender preferences, etc. With all respect to our female children, they are our mothers, sisters, and wives. Number four, I think I wanted to throw it to you to think about things rather than me doing the talking, to develop analytical skills through the prophetic examples introduced and think about the challenges involved. I'm saying this because you might find a story in the, in the seerah, but you have to ask yourself, what is the essence of that story? What changes in, what, what could be a constant and a variable? What could be a changeable number and a constant? Do I have to apply it like it is? Or I take the essence and in the modern age? These are the sort of questions that I put forward to you. And this is what I want you to develop throughout this course. This is your active and proactive role in the course. And my favorite thing as well, uh, as a historian, as someone who's fascinated with biographies, I want to at least introduce you to those children, familiarize you with those children. And you know, by the way, a lot of them, Hassan, Hussein, Anas ibn Malik, Abdullah ibn Umar, Ali ibn Abi, you know most of them, but you know them as great companions. You don't know them when they were children, you don't know them. So I'm going to introduce this dimension in their life to you, to humanize them, and to make them more familiar and more beloved to you so that you can relate to them. And when you uh, deal with your child, you say, Oh, Ali ibn Abi Talib, may Allah have mercy on you. You remind me of that child, or that child reminds me of you on that event or in that uh, incident. So these are the sort of aims that uh, I hope uh, this course will tackle. How am I going to approach this topic? Well, actually, I thought, like Harry Potter again, (laughs) to make it like a narrative, okay? What do you do in a narrative? In a narrative, at the outset, you introduce the audience, the reader, the listener, to your characters. So who are our characters? Two characters. One is the Prophet ﷺ, children around the Prophet. And the second is the children. So this introduction is going to introduce you to the Prophet ﷺ. But I'm not going here to provide you with a biography of the Prophet ﷺ. I am only going to provide you with things that I believe had an impact on children. So that when we come and talk about verbal or non-verbal body language, you come and appreciate. Hence the talking about the eyes, the lips, and the touch, as will become clear in the uh, following session. These are, so I am holding the camera now. I'm going to introduce Rasulullah to you. And I'm going to think about you as children. So what are the things that children will be fascinated with to know about the Prophet ﷺ? Okay, let's be fair and begin with the name. The name is very long. But why don't you memorize it and think about memorize it? Or think about memorizing two or three of his names. Muhammad ibn Abdullah, ibn Abdul Muttalib, ibn Hashim, ibn Abd Manaf, ibn Qusay, ibn Kilab, ibn Murra, Ibn Ka'b, Ibn Lu'ay, Ibn Ghalib, Ibn Fahr. Imagine brothers and sisters when you meet Rasulullah inshallah in Jannah and say, Ya Rasulullah, by the way, I know you by name, not just Muhammad. I know you 
Tell your grand grand grandfather what sort of relationship will happen between you and 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 him. He was born in 570 AC. Either this is debated among the historians, either in August or in March. And uh, he was made prophet and messenger at the age of 40. I think all what you need to know as far as our context now is concerned is that he remained in Mecca for 13 years. So from the age of 40 as prophet till 53. And then he remained in Medina for 10 years from 53 till 63. Why is this significant? So that when I mention to you an encounter between a child in Mecca and Rasulullah you know that Rasulullah was in his 40s and 50s. And then you can imagine what would be the situation where uh, a 10 years old boy is talking to someone who's 50. Or in Medina, when he is 53 to 63, when someone like Anas is speaking to Rasulullah you can imagine a 10 years old now speaking to someone who's 60. So we spoke about the name. We spoke about the date of birth. And the significance of the age. Let's talk about his appearance. And again, his appearance are in a termidi. I'm not going to give you an exhaustive list. And termidi is translated into English. But I'm going to identify these things which are fascinating to children. What is fascinating to a child? The face. Have you ever... Come across a child that when he looks at a face, he cries. And when he looks at another face, he smiles, he or she. Yes, perhaps. But of course, out of familiarity. But maybe the face has got something to do with it. Maybe when the face is comfortable to look at, the baby smiles. So I just want to say to you, in children terms, the face of Rasulullah was, I'm not going to say handsome and good looking, this is for the adults perhaps. But for the children it was comfortable to look at. It was gentle to look at. What is the proof? The proof is the hadith that is narrated by Al-Barra ibn Azib, where he was approached by an uncompanion who never saw Rasulullah and he's asking that companion and saying, Look, this is an impression of someone, I think, who shares our perception of Rasulullah or the companions. I bet that the perception that you have of Umar is someone who's grinning and someone who's just waiting for to fight, to pick a fight. Maybe this is a perception of a gangster in Liverpool and East London, but this is not the perception of the companions. How do you, how do you I ask you this question, how do you visualize Rasulullah? Someone who's a white beard and smiling, saying, Salaamu Alaikum. Well, that wasn't the face of the Prophet, I'll tell you that. But I assure you that the face of the Prophet ﷺ was comfortable to look at, based on that hadith where a man comes to Al-Barra ibn Azib and says, Akana wajhu Rasulillah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam mithla sayf? Was the face of Rasulullah ﷺ, he's asking that companion, because he hasn't seen him, that man. Was the face of Prophet Muhammad ﷺ like the sword? Sharp, wanting to cut things? He said, no. No, he was like the moon. Now imagine a child looks at the moon. Is it like looking at a sword? Or a bomb? Or an explosive? Or a gun? Or a tank? 
or a kitchen knife even. No, of course not. So he was comfortable to look at. In fact, let me tell you, brothers and sisters, that the face with no expression, with no verbal expression, was so effective and so powerful that it converted people. Think about a Jew, a rabbi. In fact, he was a rabbi, Abdullah bin Salam. Abdullah bin Salam, he said, I looked at the face of Prophet Muhammad Look, a rabbi, he says, I looked at the face of Rasulullah and I immediately, as a wise person who have seen millions of faces, this is not a face of a gang member. This is not a face of a serial killer. This is not a face of a child abuser. I'm saying this because there will be lots of kissing children and lots of... Uh, but what I want to say is that this is not the face of a serial killer, of a murderer, of someone who's hungry for blood. This is a face of a trustworthy person, someone who doesn't know even how to lie, even if he wanted to lie. And I believed in him, and that was enough evidence for me to believe it. Now, this is a rabbi. Now imagine a child. Won't he smile when he look at Rasulullah The hair of Rasulullah and I could talk about the hair in his chest and the beard, etc., etc. But again, I'm talking about facial expressions and the things that are appearing to the child. The child looks at the hair of Prophet Muhammad and sees a nice hair, clean hair, black hair, even at the age of 60, even at the age of 60. No gray hair like me, no gray hair like you, except... 20 gray hairs only. And he knows why they became gray. Not because out of stress for exams, or because he had a fight with his wife, or because he lost his job, or he couldn't pay his mortgage. No. Because of hood wa akhawati. Shayabatni hood wa akhawati. Umar Khattab tells him once, Ya Rasulullah, shipped. Ya Rasulullah, you became old. Yes, Ya Umar, shayabatni hood wa akhawati. There are verses in Surah Hud, فَاسْتَقِمْ كَمَا أُمِرْتْ That made my hair gray. Why, why am I saying this? Because he was to the children not extremely old. Not a grandfather. Someone who's approachable. Someone that can play with us. Someone who can joke with us. Yet there is an element of respect. A father figure. Of course, a prophet figure. But a father, I'm, I'm trying to humanize now. I'm not trying to say that he's the messenger, he's the prophet. To a child, you cannot ration that. He receives revelation, he's the prophet. This is when you grow up a little bit. But a child in his six, seven, eight, nine, ten years, how does he see the prophet? This is what I'm interested in. Now the eyes, the eyes. And you are mothers, and you are fathers, and you know the eyes, and the eye contact. Now imagine if I tell you, that when you, when you wake up from your sleep, or when you sleep late, your eyes sometimes become red. Rasulullah his eyes are extremely, there is a color contrast. The black is black, blacker than black, to quote Malcolm X, and whiter than white. And that's it. No red, no blood veins, 
and wide, wide eyes. So imagine this. Imagine this wide eye and imagine it in a context of smile. And this is the, the other thing. Brothers and sisters, if you have a perception of Rasulullah as always weeping and crying and shouting, this perception is wrong. Because the Sahaba, Radhuallahu alayhim, says, they say, one of them, مَا رَأَيْتُ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ إِلَّا مُتَبَسِّمًا I never saw Rasulullah unless he was smiling, which means that this was the norm. The exception was when he is giving khutbah, for obvious reasons, when he is in a battle, for obvious reasons, and when he is receiving revelation, for obvious reasons. But other than that, he's smiling. In fact, there is a fascinating hadith where a child says, a child, Abdullah bin Haritha, his name, he says, مَا رَآنِي رَسُولُ اللَّهِ وَسَلَّمْ إِلَّا وَابْتَسَمَ فِي وَجِهِ He says, he says, whenever a Rasulullah encounters me, he smiles. Brothers and sisters, think about someone who's called Muhammad in Liverpool. Comfortable face. Whenever he sees you, he smiles. He has wide eyes. He's caring. He's loving, etc., etc. At the outset, you haven't dealt with him. He might be a bummer or anything, but you haven't dealt with them. Won't you fall in love with him? So imagine the child... I'm trying now to dramatize the, to make it go deep inside your head now. A child encountering all that. Now when that child grows up and talks to the tabi'een and tabi'i tabi'een, will he talk like me? No. You, you might find I'm, I'm excited. I assure you that he was even more excited. You know why? Because Anas ibn Malik, who lived with Rasulullah 10 years, would you imagine that he lived for 103 years, and he says, not a day passes since Rasulullah died without me seeing him in the dream, and without me crying every day when I remember his face. So you think I'm fast, I am excited. I am excited, and I haven't seen the Prophet ﷺ. And you might be crying, and you haven't seen the Prophet ﷺ. What I'm trying now to tell you is that those saw the Prophet ﷺ. And this is the kind of impact that the physical appearance of the Prophet ﷺ had on them. Now, have you ever thought about that? Before then, before now? Have you, we, we looked at, at the physical appearance of Rasulullah But have, have we looked at that dimension? You see brothers, this table here. I'm always used to looking at this table from this angle. Now just shift your head a little bit and go and look at it from this angle. Look at it as a woman and look at it as a man and look at it as a teenager and look at it as a child. I assure you that you will get different readings than the reading of a Tirmidhi and Al-Bukhari and Ibn Kathir. And this is, I think, your active engagement in reading the text. Now imagine this eyes, smiling eyes, and imagine the lips. The lips are quite white, so when he speaks, you can't miss it. When you say, shh, you won't miss it. When he says, Anas, come, you won't miss him. Even if you are deaf, you can see the lips. And no smelling mouth, no yellow teeth. The teeth is clean. The miswak is in the pocket. 
and the teeth is not broken or has black or is black or is diseased. The gums are healthy. Again, you might say we are not dentists here. But again, believe me, brothers and sisters, this is exactly what a child will be looking at when someone speaks. And it does play a tremendous role on the child who might not understand the rationality behind each word, but will understand in which context and how is it being articulated. And then when he talks, when he speaks, he speaks very clear. He doesn't cough while he's speaking. You don't have to say to him, raise your voice or lower it. He speaks at your tone. And he tunes his voice in accordance to you. Not just voice-wise, but even content-wise. He looks at your age. He looks at your gender. He looks at your educational background. And he reacts and acts and advises accordingly. And that's why you have lots of companions asking the same question but receiving various answers according to the character of the personality. Even that advice where Rasulullah said, لا تغضب, لا تغضب, لا تغضب. Don't be angry, don't be angry, don't be angry. Do you think it just came out of the blue? No, he knew the companion. He saw him when he becomes angry. He knows that he has and picks lots of fights, probably with his wife, with his children in the mosque. The context is appropriate to the person. But as readers, we just read it from the other side. We don't take the dimension of the questioner. He speaks very visibly and very clearly, so much so that Aisha radiallahu says that the listener will memorize what he says. So each listener actually turns into a tape recorder because he's speaking very slowly, not slowly to bore you or to turn you to sleep, no, slowly for you to absorb. And sometimes, as Anas ibn Malik says, he repeats what he says three times, not always, but three times. And I can imagine that maybe he repeats three times for children. Maybe. Because children needs repetition. We spoke about the physical. Just the physical. Now imagine with all this beauty, he touches you. He touches you on your hand, by shaking your hand. This is not for the sisters. Uh, I'm sorry to say this. Maybe you can shake hand with Aisha radiallahu anha, but not with Rasulullah He puts his hand on the cheek of the child or the head of the child. Now imagine. Imagine he does this. I want you to imagine it more, more strongly than that. Imagine it, and Anas ibn Malik, the child who's holding the camera, helps you to imagine. He says, I never touched something that was softer even softer than silk, other than the hand of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. وَلَا مَسَسْتُ خَزًّا وَلَا حَرِيرًا وَلَا شَيْئًا Nothing, nothing did I ever touched in my life that was softer and tender and smoother than the hand of the Rasul sallallahu And you might say this is an exaggeration, the following quotation. وَلَا you go to all the good stores and go to all the perfumes for women and all the perfumes for men, fragrances, etc. According to Anas, and you might call it an exaggeration, but he doesn't lie. He says, I never smelled a fragrance that was more 
beautiful than the sweat of Rasulullah. So I would not imagine that Rasulullah would use a deodorant. The misk is coming from his. We are talking about the Prophet Sallallahu Okay, are you with me? Are you imagining? Are you visualizing? Good. Now these are the physical appearances. What about the behavioral? Imagine he smiles, he touches, he looks at you, eye contact, he speaks to you, etc., etc. But with all that, he's merciful. He doesn't reproach you. He doesn't shout at you. He doesn't beat you up. He doesn't say to his companions, go and beat him up. He doesn't have bodyguards. You don't, when you see him, feel threatened. He doesn't have to be a policeman for you to feel that you are safe. When you see him, you feel he is safe even without a particular uniform. This is Rasul Now you as an adult, you will feel safe. What about children? What about children? Seeing that comfortable face like the moon, behaving with them in mercy. There is brothers and sisters a hadith that we come across it uh, a lot. But just let me give a twist to the reading, a new twist to it. When Rasulullah was asked by Aisha, what was the most difficult time that you have encountered throughout your life? Was it the battle of Uhud? For obvious reasons, his teeth were broken and he fell into that hole and it was rumored that he was killed. It was a terrible day, the battle of Uhud. So to Aisha who has witnessed and who was by the, at that time the wife of Rasulullah she don't have a perception of the Mecca period. She was still too young. He said, no, ya Aisha, it wasn't in Medina. My terrible time, my most terrible time, it was in Mecca. When I went to At-Ta'if, looking for an alternative place before I came to Medina, I was stoned by the people when they rejected me. So much so that my feet were bleeding, and the historians say that, uh, in fact, uh, and you know this when someone bleeds, the slipper or the shoes or the socks sticks into the skin of the feet, and they say that the slippers were sticking into the feet of Rasulullah and blood was flowing all over and Zayd ibn Haritha was with him protecting and cleaning. And imagine if you were there, if, if someone now in the street slaps you and the, the, the police comes and says, uh, you know, did he uh, physically abuse you? You say yes. Would you say at that time, no, he didn't? And when he comes to you, this person, you say, uh, and he says, why didn't you say to the police? You say to him, well, I forgive you. Maybe one day you will become a Muslim. Or maybe one day your children might become Muslims. Well, Rasulullah did exactly that. When Malak al-Akhshabayn, when the angel came, the angel of the mountains, and there were two big mountains, and Rasulullah was in between, and the angel was saying, I have an order from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. No, look, look, the connection now. It's with Allah. It's not with the police. It's not with the security. No, it's with Allah. Allah is sending angels now to go and see what does he want. And the angel says to Rasulullah shall I just crush them in between these two massive mountains? And the angel, the angel is speaking with a fearful voice, angry voice for what he saw. And the human being elevates over the level of the angel in kindness and forgiveness only because he's the Prophet, and says no. You know why no? Because of the children. Not because of them, because of the children. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought how children are very beloved, very valuable, very, very hopeful that you put hope on them that one day they will change things, that one day they will turn Ta'if into a Muslim city? 
Look at the vision, brothers and sisters. It's not just about blood. It's not about ego. It's not about that they insulted me. It's about what you want from this earth. What do you want from those human beings? Do you want to bomb them? Kill them? Or do you want to change them from within? This needs vision, needs education, needs tolerance, needs mercy. This is not political talk I'm giving you here. This is genuine talk based on the seerah of Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Have you ever came up? You know Rasul He says, the most beloved thing to me is to pray and to pray and to pray and to pray. But what is more, more beloved for him is not to see a child cry. That's why he shortens the prayer. Have you thought about it like this? That he comes against his own emotions and feelings and joy for a greater joy. And that is to keep the child quiet and to keep the mother not concerned about the child crying while she's praying. Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam again deal, dealt with children and this is in relation to talking again I'm referring to talking Rasul dealt with children on their level on their level so when he is 10 today they say a 6 years old is different than a 3 is different than 10 is different than 12 I assure you that Rasul knew that perfectly well and I'll give you an example. Before the Battle of Badr, the Muslims wanted to know the number of the mushriks. So they took a young boy who was the shepherd and taking care of the food. They kidnapped him. And they wanted to know how many mushriks were in the battle. So they took someone from the army, but they took a child, they took a young boy. And they started telling him, how many are they? How many are they? And they are what? Hundreds, hundreds. Well, they were about 1,000 something. So they are beating up the child to get him to tell them how many are in the battle, how many mushriks. And the child is screaming and crying. Wallahi, I don't know, I don't know. And Rasulullah saw them beating the child. So he stops the fight or he stops the beating. And he says, what do you want to know? He said, Ya Rasul, I want to know how many are in the battle. He said, okay, I'll speak with him. I'll deal with him. And what sort of question does he ask? If, you, if, you, if it was you, what would you say? I don't know what would you say. Certainly it would not come to my mind. He says to him, how many camels are they? Are, are in the battle? How many camels? I'm imagining the Sahaba looking and saying, you know, we are, <laughs> we are thinking about mushriks, not camels. But Rasul is saying, how many camels are they? are there. Immediately the boy, without beating, he said, between nine and ten. So Rasulullah immediately said, they are, they are between nine hundred and one thousand. Each camel is consumed by hundred people. And those are Arabs, and they know that. So, he got the answer but through a different question that is appropriate with the mentality of the question. Camels are easy to count because they are big, and they are easy to count because they are few. They are nine or ten. They are not f 500, and they are not ants. 
So they are camels and they are a few. But the question is right. The beating is wrong. So when you ask your child, do you smoke or not, ask the right question. Maybe he will answer and say, yes, I do. Okay, I spoke a lot about Rasulullah I spoke a lot about his physical appearance. What about his childhood? Well, we can do a course on that, but I'm just going to say a few lines. Rasulullah was orphan, but he had an extremely healthy childhood. Wherever he went, he, he was playing. He played, simple as that. He played with the children. In Mecca, Rasulullah had ten uncles and six aunts. Uncles like Al-Harith that died before uncles, the, father, the brother of the father, Abdullah. He died before Rasulullah became a Rasul. Another uncle is Al-Abbas who became Muslim. And he is the father of Abdullah ibn Abbas. Abu Talib, and you know, he is the one that took care of Rasulullah. Abu Lahab, unfortunately, severe, dangerous, mushrik, and continued to be mushrik. Hamza is an uncle, and he was shaheed. And Abdullah, of course, the father of Rasulullah. The aunts were Safiya. She is the mother of Zubair ibn al-Awwam, who is the father of Abdullah ibn Zubair ibn al-Awwam. I don't want to bore you now, but these are great people, by the way. And all of them have books written about them. Arwa is another aunt. Humayna is another aunt. Why are you telling us this? I am telling you this to notice that he had a big family and all of those aunts and uncles had children of the same age that were playing with Rasulullah So he had a healthy childhood. He was not an isolated orphan. He was not an orphan that knew no one. He came from a Hashemite family that had lots of children. And you are aware, again, that Rasulullah went outside Mecca. Why? Because city life was corrupt. Mecca was, the Arabic was corrupt. So they needed to speak proper Arabic. They sent their children. But another thing is that they can play in the open. Not in a small park closed through, but in the open. And that's what Rasulullah was doing. Do you remember when Jibreel came and dissected the heart of Rasulullah and took this black spot? In which context did he do that? Inside the household? Rasulullah was waiting? When is Jibreel coming? No. According to Al-Bukhari and other muhaddithin, atahu Jibreel, wa huwa So even when he did such a, such a painful thing, you might think, he did it in a context of playing. In a context of joy. And of course it was an enjoyable thing because you will become purer and purer. But the point is that it happened while he was playing with children. Do you know that Rasulullah went to Medina when he was a child? Because his mother have, his mother is originally from Medina and her relatives, Bani Najjar, are from Medina. Do you remember when Rasulullah went to Medina with the camel and Bani Najjar said, Ya Rasulullah, come and stay with us, your mother, etc. We are relatives. Do you remember all that? Because when he was young, he traveled with his mother once to Medina. Once or even more. But what is more fascinating, according to the Musnad al-Imam Ahmed, in a hadith narrated by Anas ibn Malik, this is what is fascinating. أن الرسول صلى الله عليه وسلم سبح وهو صغير 
في بستان اخواله بني النجار ولعب مع الصبيان ذا ورد لعب مع الصبيان ريبيتس اتسلف باي ذا اتاه جبريل وهو يلعب مع الصبيان بني النجار ولعب مع الصبيان هيز اولويز بلاين الرسول صلى الله And imagine when someone is playing, is he crying? No, he's laughing and giggling and probably hitting this child and exploring and, 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 and. This is young Prophet, that one day he will be bleeding in a ta'if and one day saying, Oh Allah, it's for the offspring of those kuffar that I'm worried about. Make this link, brothers, brothers and sisters. So this, this fascinating hadith that is narrated by Anas ibn Malik, he says, Anna Rasulullah sabaha wa huwa sagheer. He swam. He was swimming in the small swimming pool in the house of Bani Najjar. Can you imagine the child, Rasulullah swimming? So when Rasulullah says, teach your children to swim, he is an expert in swimming in a country or a continent or Mecca or Medina that had no sea. Because when he was a child, he used to swim in a swimming pool. Brothers and sisters, have you ever thought about Rasulullah like this? Ask yourself that. I identified now one major character in our narrative. You remember our story? This is the beginning of the narrative, by the way. I don't want to lose you. Uh, bear with me. The beginning of the narrative is that I identified the character of Rasulullah. Spoke about the appearance, behavioral character, swimming, lovely childhood. Now I want to bring the children on the stage for you to get to know them. Let me begin by uh, someone that you will get to hear his name a lot. He is one of the tremendous holders of the camera that we are indebted to for this course. And that is Anas ibn Malik. Who was Anas? In a nutshell, Anas was the servant of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. If inshallah you have a child in the future, Anas is, is, is a good name. And Rasulullah when he used to joke with him, he used to say, Unais, Unais. So I know children that are called Unais. And Anas means happy, means uh, keeping company. It's, it's, it's a lovely name and it's short. So Anas, I'm introducing you now, Anas. Anas, by the way, died at the age of 103. But no, no, forget about that. Let's go to Anas the 10 years. Anas uh, is the servant of the Prophet ﷺ, and he continued to be with Rasulullah for 10 years inside the household. This is a fascinating thing, by the way. Neither Abdullah ibn Umar as a child, neither Ali ibn Abi Talib as a child. At a later stage, he left the household of Rasulullah. Married Fatima, of course, But I'm talking about a child who was continuously in the house. Who saw the wives of Rasulullah? Who can answer a lot of the questions that we've been asking? Anas, did Rasulullah used to clean the dishes? No, it was me. Sometimes, sometimes he would help. Anas, go and buy me something from the shop. Anas was instructed, so Anas knew everything, and that's why do you blame Anas when he cries every day when he remembers Rasulullah? Do you blame Anas when he thinks that nothing is softer than the, how, than the hand of Rasulullah or nothing seems beautiful in fragrance other than the sweat? That means that he smelled the sweat of Rasulullah because he lived with him inside this household. When Rasulullah died, Anas was 20 years old. So Anas knew Rasulullah when he was 10. Bear in mind that Anas was in Medina only. So whenever we speak about Mecca, there is no Anas. 
So Anas died at the age of 103, but when Rasulullah died, Anas was only 20. In his 20s, very young. But he knew Rasulullah since he was 10. Another hero in our narrative to introduce the characters is Al-Hasan ibn Ali. He had a one year younger than him brother who was called Al-Hussein. Al-Hasan was born three years before Rasul sallallahu migrated to Medina. So that tells you that Ali ibn Abi Talib married his mother, the mother of Hassan, i.e. married Fatima at such a young age. And Fatima and Ali were young. Nothing, nothing is wrong. This is just to, nothing is wrong with a sister marrying young and uh, they become like friends more than husband and wife uh, and grow, grow with each other and share the experience with each other. Do you remember when I was, uh, you know, having lollipop? Oh yes, do you remember when I was having ice cream? They grow with each other. And the more shared experience there are, the stronger the bond. So imagine Ali ibn Abi Talib and Fatima growing up together and having a baby called Al-Hassan, and soon after having another one called Al-Hussein. Sadly, Al-Hassan uh, died when he was 46, so quite a young age. And Al-Hassan, when he was born, Rasulullah was at that time 56. I'm saying ages now to make you appreciate. Whenever you see Rasulullah playing with Al-Hassan, it is someone who's at the age of two, being played with by someone at the age of 56 and 57, and 58, 59. And I will tell you things that this 58 was doing that you would not imagine someone at the age of 58 was doing, not to mention the Prophet but just to show you how he dealt with babies or children. Al-Hasan ibn Ali, عنه, he looked exactly like Rasulullah. In fact, Abu Bakr al-Siddiq, and everyone knew that. He says to Ali, he looks like Rasulullah. He does not look like you. And Ali ibn Abi Talib is smiling. Pleasure, honor. Honor if my son looks like my father-in-law. Is it an honor today if uh, your son looks like your father-in-law or mother-in-law? I don't know, the daughter or the son? I don't know. But honor, why not? He's the, the father of my beloved wife. And they say that Al-Hussein, his other brother, they say that Al-Hassan, from his chest to the face, looks like Rasulullah and Al-Hussein from the bottom to the feet, the shape of the feet, and the, looks like Rasulullah. So it seems that Al-Hassan and Hussein shared, each one took half of the, the upper half and the lower, the lower half. And it goes beyond doubt, and Rasulullah said it many times, that, oh Allah, Al-Hassan, Al-Hussein, Al-Hassan and Al-Hussein are the most beloved to me. Uh, imagine when a grandfather says this about the grandson or the granddaughter. Another companion is uh, Abdullah ibn Abbas. Abdullah ibn Abbas is quite famous and you all know him. But brothers and sisters, do you know that he only encountered the Prophet ﷺ for two and a half years? This is because Al-Abbas, his father, became Muslim and he only migrated to Medina when Mecca was conquered. So he migrated to Medina al-Abbas, that is, quite old, the uncle of Rasulullah that I mentioned his name. Abdullah ibn Abbas was his son, 
when he came to Medina, he was quite young. In fact, just to let you know that uh, Abdullah ibn Abbas was born three years before the Prophet migrated into Medina. So how old was the Prophet Tell me. Fifty? Fifty. If he was born three years before the Prophet migrated, fifty. And if the Prophet died at the age of sixty-three, then how old was Abdullah ibn Abbas when Rasulullah died? Abdullah ibn Abbas, the one that you call a scholar, he was 13. Can you believe that? Not only that, but he wasn't like Anas. He only lived with Rasulullah for two and a half years because he only saw the Prophet when Mecca was conquered. And soon after that, Rasulullah died. So in fact, he encountered the Prophet exactly, if you want it, in months, 30 months only. But do you know why we know him as a scholar? Because Rasulullah made a special dua for him. Allahumma faqihhu fi al-deen wa'allimhu al-ta'wil. Oh Allah, educate him in the deen and teach him interpretation. That's why you have the tafsir of Abdullah ibn Abbas. Imagine a 13 years old boy having his own tafsir. Why? Because for these two and a half years, that was sufficient for him to know the Quran inside out. Why? Because he was with the Prophet ﷺ most of the time. Praying with him, riding the donkey with him, joking with him. And that, if anything, tells you who our Rasulullah was hanging around with. If the servant was a child, and his best friend was Abdullah ibn Abbas, where is Abu Bakr? Where is Umar? Where is Uthman? Bakr, Umar, and Uthman, this is the classic camera. But our camera... Is telling us another reading that there were other companions, young companions, teenagers. But they were not smokers, they were not chasing girls, but they were after a Rasulullah to learn the Quran and to educate it to you. I will end my uh, final character, and you know him very well, Abdullah ibn Umar, and you perhaps know him very well because of his father. Umar ibn Khattab. Well, let me tell you something. Abdullah ibn Umar actually is quite uh, old. He uh, quite old in the sense that when Rasulullah died, he was uh, 20. But old in what? He was born three years before Rasulullah became prophet. So do you want us to do the calculation again? If Rasulullah if he was born three years after Rasulullah became a messenger. So how old was Rasulullah? 43. And he migrated, he became a Muslim with his father. Because at that time when Umar al-Khattab became a Muslim, he had already got Abdullah ibn Umar. That's why I'm saying he's, he's a bit old. I.e. he can understand Islam and he became a Muslim. He migrated to Medina when he was 10 and he remained 10 years with Rasulullah and when Rasulullah died, he was 20. And again, 10 years were enough to make Abdullah ibn Umar the pious, the zahid, the well-known companion, not just because he was the son of Umar al-Khattab, but because he was Abdullah ibn Umar, but because he was one of the children that were blessed to accompany Rasul sallallahu alayhi wasallam. We've identified our characters like this. I think now we can begin our narrative. 
أقول قولي هذا وأستغفر الله لي ولكم فاستغفروه إنه الغفور الرحيم